So we're going to be in Psalm 91 again tonight. Just uh, as we get there. Cover, by God's grace, a couple more verses tonight. You know, the word of God is like a good meal. It's to be savored. All right, let me try that again. I'll try this side. The word of God is like a good meal. It's to be savored. Amen. It's not fast food. You don't just choke it down in your car, covered with ketchup and sesame seeds. Come on. It's like a fine meal. And you don't rush through it, and you don't swallow it without tasting it. And that's why we take the time to go verse by verse through a psalm like this. I'm going to ask Sister Kim to read Psalm 91 in just a minute here, the whole thing. But we're just going to cover a few more verses tonight. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for this incredible psalm that has been a psalm to encourage those in harm's way throughout the ages, to remind your church that you are our protector, you are our covering, you are our fortress. So, Father, as we just enjoy these verses and unpack them and enjoy all of what you tucked in there for those who seek you past the, just the veneer of your word and, and go deep by the Holy Spirit, God, allow the Holy Spirit to just unveil all of what you've tucked in there for those who love you and seek you with their whole heart. I pray that in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Sister Kim, hit it. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the, pest, from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. So last time, we noted that this psalm is a powerful reminder of God's protection for those who find themselves in harm's way or in dangerous situations. Now, many times we don't feel like that's us, but you know, when you get up in the morning and you walk out of your house and you get in your car and you drive to work, there's all kinds of danger all around. Dealing with different people, dealing with different spirits, sometimes we're surrounded by evil. And we don't realize that many times we are in harm's way because we are 
the children of God in a fallen world, and the devil puts his minions around us to trip us up, to knock us down, and to disarm our faith. So we are those who are in harm's way. Uh, many in the military have found this psalm to be a uh, comfort to them when they're uh, in a serious situation where, you know, they're in open warfare. We also talked about the importance of the secret place last week. If you weren't here and you didn't hear this message, I encourage you to listen online. But the secret place, we, dis- we defined it, we described it. Basically, you and I need a place where we can get alone with God and commune with him. You say, where is the secret place? Well, it's a secret got to find one where nobody else can get to you. You might have to hide in the, in the dishwasher. You might have to hide in the dryer. You might have to lock yourself in the closet. There's a reason they call it a prayer closet. Those of you who have children, be creative. But the secret place is important. We need to find one for ourselves and be in it daily. We talked about abiding in Christ, being connected to him. Without him, we can do nothing. In and of our own strength, we can do nothing. With our own intelligence, our own intellect, our own savvy, we can do nothing. But you say, no, pastor, I've done stuff like that. Well, it's not going to last. It's not going to be eternal, and you can't take it with you. Only what we build in the spirit by the power of the spirit, initiated by God, financed by God, and provoked by God is what's going to last for eternity. You and I need to abide in Christ. Whatever he pours into us, whatever he calls us to do, we do that and we do nothing else. So we pick up in Psalm 91, verse 2, with this. It says, I will say of the Lord. Now you would think, well, you know, that's just kind of an introduction to what's going on there. I will say of the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom will I trust. But we've got to stop and take a look at I will say. It seems like a lot of people have a lot to say about Jesus, don't they? Everybody's got an expert opinion on who Jesus is. Everyone believes they know exactly who Jesus is. Well, I think Jesus is this, and I think Jesus is that. And, you know, people have opinions on it, and they stick to them, and they build their lives around those opinions. And the the problem is some of those opinions are unbiblical, and some of them are just flat out wrong. We're going to talk about that. But the psalmist says here, I will say of the Lord. So he's saying something about the Lord. And, and, you know... (laughs) What we say, what we declare in, in the spiritual realm, what we believe about Jesus is very important. Some say Jesus was just a good man. Some say he was a wise teacher. Come on, we've heard all these things before, right? You're witnessing to a friend. Well, Jesus was just a good, he was like a nice guy, you know, just, you know, wise. He had some good, you know, he told good stories, parables, right? Some people say, well, he was a prophet. Some entire religions reject his divinity and say he was just a prophet. Some say he was a failed revolutionary. Some say he was just a historical figure. Some say Jesus was a fraud. I was witnessing to a girl one time in high school, and she proceeded to tell me that Mary got pregnant out of wedlock, so made the whole Jesus story up just to get out of trouble. She believed that. So Jesus to her was just a fraud, just a a way out of trouble. Some think that Jesus is a figment of our imagination, despite all the historical records that the historians of the time chronicled his existence and his ministry and even his resurrection. Some say, ah, Jesus is just a made-up guy that people made up to start a religion to extract money from stupid people. Come on, I'm just being honest with you in church on Wednesday night. This is what people say about Jesus. In fact, 
everyone has a, an opinion and everyone thinks they're right, Jesus actually asked his own disciples what their thoughts were on this topic. In Matthew 16, 13 through 16, they answer, uh, he asks a question and they answer it and there's two parts to it. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? So they said to him, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered. Listen, Peter was always putting his foot in his mouth, always saying the wrong thing. This time, Peter was full of the Holy Ghost and his response is from the Lord. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, he asked them, well, who do men say that I am? And, you know, there again, they start spouting off prophets. The Jews, half of the Jews didn't believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. But, you know, now, now we're into reincarnation. Someone who was dead came back. They're saying he's Jeremiah. He's Elijah. He's a prophet. I mean, where are people getting this stuff from? And they have all these wild opinions about who he is. And, and instead of just accepting the testimony of who he says he is, then, you know, he comes and he says, but who do you say I am? See, this is the important part, because the psalmist says here in 91, I will say of the Lord. So the psalmist is saying, I'm saying this about the Lord. Jesus says, guys, what do you think about me? Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's confession becomes the foundation of entrance into the kingdom in the New Testament. The way you become a Christian is to confess who Jesus is. So what you say about the Lord determines whether or not you can be saved or not. Uh, Peter's answer was about to become the linchpin of the faith for the New Testament church. Some religious systems say that the church was built on Peter the man. No, the church wasn't built on Peter. God never built his church on a man. He built the church on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the way you gain entrance into the kingdom. That's the way you become born again. Not, not by submitting to some liturgical priestly order and popes and all this nonsense that's not scriptural. Peter, he said, Peter, you are a rock. That means a small pebble. The other word for the, the rock of the salvation is a great big stone. The, the foundation that we're built on is that when you confess who Jesus Christ is, you become born again and you become part of the family of God. So what we say about Jesus determines whether or not we can be saved because you can't be saved by a good man or a wise teacher or even a prophet. A prophet didn't die on the cross and rise on the third day, amen? You can't be saved by a religious leader or a revolutionary. You can't be saved by, you know, just a, someone who is a good storyteller. No, the only thing that can save our eternal souls from hell is the only begotten son who died in our place and rose on the third day. So I will say the Lord is important. Our confession is important. And I'll ask you this tonight. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, don't all answer me at once. But it's important that we know. When someone asks us who, who, you know, what we believe in and who Jesus is, we better have the same confession as Peter. We can use other words and we can be more descriptive, but it's got to be that he is the only begotten son of God and that he died and he rose again. That's the gospel. You and I, what we say about Jesus makes a difference for our own souls, and it makes a difference to everyone around us because it's not only our profession but the way we live that's going to send ripples throughout the pond 
of our lives and affect everyone around us. What do we say about the Lord? What do our actions say about the Lord? What does our demeanor say about the Lord? Psalm 91.2, the psalmist, you know, he has a genuine relationship with God, and he's telling us four things that the Lord is to him. Uh, as you see here, I will say of the Lord. Now, this is what he says. The Lord is my refuge. He's my fortress, my God, in whom will I trust. There's four things in there that he's declaring by an expression of his words. And remember, we said words are powerful. God created everything seen and unseen with words. Words are powerful, so our confession is powerful. Uh, he says four things about who the Lord is to him. The number one, he says, the Lord is my refuge. Now, that Hebrew word is makesha, and it means shelter, a place of hope and trust. I want you to understand the psalmist is telling us here that the Lord, for him, is his refuge. It's a place where he can go to find shelter. It's a place that he can hope in and trust in, a place of safety. The Lord himself becomes our shelter when we come to Jesus. The Lord himself becomes the place where we can find spiritual and emotional safety. Look, church, in the craziness of everything that's going on around us, the swirling of opinions and the swirling of, you know, the end times and, and, and systems and uh, personalities falling into place here, you and I need a place of emotional safety. You and I need a place of spiritual safety. We talk about the secret place. That's, a, that's such a place. But what makes that secret place a place of refuge is the fact that Jesus is in it. You can go lock yourself anywhere by yourself. If you're not a Christian, you can lock yourself in the darkest prayer closet and all that stuff. And, you know, you can burn incense and chant and do all you want, but God's not there. You're just having some alone time in the dark. We need a refuge. We need a place of hope and trust and safety. And that's what the Lord becomes for us. You know, that, that place where we can go just to find emotional and spiritual strength. Now, we've all seen the outworking of the progressive idea of a safe space. Now, don't die on me now. But, you know, college students that hear words that they can't deal with need to go to a safe space with their coloring books. You know, color some happy pictures. I wish I was making this stuff up. And you know that I'm not. But it's like, ooh, I heard a word I don't agree with. I heard an opinion that's, you know, I don't like, and I need a safe space now. Come on, that's not what Christians do. But we do need a safe space from the world to go into the presence of God. And it's not because we can't handle different ideas. or We, we understand it's because we need to be alone with the Lord. Uh, you know, we need to be coming out of the world and being separate from it and yet being in God's presence in such a way that it refreshes us. The refuge spoken of in this verse is a safe place for you and I to escape the wickedness of this world. When the Bible says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, this is part of what he means. Find a place of intimacy with me. Get alone with me. Let me be your refuge. Let me be the place you run to. Let me be the one you run to when you're in trouble, when you're overwhelmed, when your emotions are, are just frazzled. Come on, anybody out there? <laughs> We've got to run to him. We've got to hide ourselves in him. There's a, per, a perpetual barrage of filth and lies and deception that's in the world all day long. 
You and I need to turn off the TV, the computer, put down the phone, and just get alone with him. Just a little time in his presence is so refreshing to our souls. You and I need to discover what the psalmist knew, that the Lord is a refuge for us. Number two, he said, the Lord is my fortress. Now, a refuge is one thing, but a fortress is a little different. That refuge provides that emotional, spiritual place of safety. Yet a fortress is actually, uh, you know, the word in Hebrew is mossad, and it means a defensive stronghold, a castle, or a fort. Think about that. We, we can run to a place where there's literal safety for us physically. You and I need protection. Jesus said when he left his disciples, hey, guys, sell a coat and buy a sword because I'm not here to protect you anymore, and you got to protect yourself because there's evil in the world. Interesting thought. Can you and I protect ourselves from the evil of this world? Well, to a degree, we're told to, but then at some point, we need God to be our protection. And that this word fortress, Mossad, to defend a stronghold. I want you to think of a castle. You know, it's amazing. Kids, when I don't know if kids go outside anymore or do anything, but when we were kids, we were always outside, and half of the time we were doing what? Building forts, right? Come on, any guys out there, mud under your fingernails, making forts, having BB gun fights, don't tell your mother. But we did that. Why? Because we wanted a, a place, you know, in, in our hearts, you know, that we wanted that place of, of physical safety, of protection. And we're enamored with that as children. Yet as grown adults, as, as spiritually mature Christians, we also need to have a place where we can run to for physical safety and realize that the Lord is our protection. We live in a dangerous world, a world where the sin of Cain is, is something that occurs on a perpetual basis. Cain was the first what? Say it like you mean it. Murderer. The first time it sounded like murmur. He was a murderer. Killed his brother. He killed Abel. Without a gun, amazingly enough, he used a rock. It's not the weapon of choice. Murder is a, a thing in the people's hearts. And from that first murder, murder has continued perpetually in the earth all the time. In 2017, I tried to pull some statistics and research here. In 2017, in the United States, there are approximately 17,000 murders. That's about 46 every day and two an hour. Now, I'm not sure if these statistics, I kind of feel like it's probably more than that now, especially what we've got going on. And just the recent statistics coming out of Chicago, so far this year, Chicago has had 2,000 20 shootings thus far this year. Uh, the most violent week in, in Chicago in, in 21 here, 104 shot, 19 dead, and 13 children wounded. None in jail. Because we have such a, a ridiculous legal system at this point, they're letting them out because they can't afford to lock them up. Got to vote right, people. And so here we are. Chicago is more dangerous than Afghanistan. Chicago is more dangerous than Iraq. In, in the United States, two people murdered an hour. The sin of Cain still happens all around us. And we, you know, we can't ignore the fact that there's evil in this world. And if we ignore it, that doesn't make the evil go away. If we try to play nice with evil, that doesn't solve it. You know, we need to come inside the fortress, the castle of God's protection. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is our God. And listen, when we bow the knee to him and we become his child, he protects his children. 
He covers us with the blood of Jesus, amen? You say, well, what's that? that that's a, a protective uh, barrier. That's a fortress. That's a place where we can run to, amen? Whenever you're in trouble, whenever you're in danger, whenever you're in crisis, cry out for the blood of Jesus to be your covering, amen? That's the fortress for us. Don't just stand there. And do, I mean, call 911 if you got to, but you better cry out to Jesus because... He gets there a lot faster than 911. So he's our refuge. He's our fortress. The psalmist says in number three, he says, he is my God. And sadly, the world around us doesn't see the importance of God in their lives. I'm talking to more and more young people who have never been to church. I'm sitting in premarital counseling with couples that are completely unchurched. They want to get married in church. They want the man of God to marry them. But they never went to church, don't want to come to church, not sure if they like church. We live in an unchurched world. Some people call America a post-Christian world. You know, and you can say whatever you want. The church is alive and well and doing what the church has been called to do, amen. The church is not dead. The church is not finished. You know, people pronounce all kinds of things over the church. Brother Charles, we're still going on the mission field, amen? We're still saving people. On Sunday here, second service, four people accepted Christ. You know, God is still moving, amen? But a lot of people don't see the importance of church in their lives. Now, you guys are here on Wednesday night. I mean, you're like black belt level Christians here. But they did a study in Sweden with some teenagers, and these, these Swedes were asked to respond to some statements here, and the statement is, I think the following could give my life more meaning. And then they asked them some questions. 85% thought that meaning could be found in a job. 85% thought it could be found in a marriage partner. 84% thought meaning was found in sports and recreation. 15% thought that reading the Bible and prayer could help. And 15% that thought that alcohol could help. So as many people that thought God could help thought that Budweiser could help. 85% considered the question of the meaning of life unimportant. What does it matter? 80% considered the existence of Jesus to be unimportant. 85 considered it unimportant whether or not Jesus was the Son of God. And 75% concluded that the question of God's existence was irrelevant. Wow. You say, man, Europe is, Europe's pretty dark. We're only a few hundred years behind them. This is the cyclical pattern we see of people who walk away from God in a generation that's unchurched. And then a few generations later, we, we have basically heathenism that sees no significance for Jesus, no significance for God in their lives, that sports and recreation. We're not too far behind in America, amen? More, more people, you know, want to watch the sports on Sunday than come to church. The psalmist says, he is my God. 1 John 2, 22-23. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Listen, there's no spirituality without God. There's no relationship with God without Christ. There's no access to salvation, the free gift of it, without Jesus. 
When we live in a world that doesn't see the importance of God or the, or the importance of Jesus or the importance of going to God's house and hearing God's word and allowing it to touch their lives, we're in a, we're in a bad situation. Uh, we need to somehow, some way as the church, shine the light and, and be spiritually attractive to a world around us that is thoroughly distracted. I know it's a big job, but you know what? Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world, amen? Even though there's only one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not our God until we bow the knee to Christ. And it's important we understand that, and it's important that we allow that to motivate us to share Christ with everyone we can. Look, Pastor Rick can't touch your whole circle, can't touch your whole family, can't touch the people you work with. I don't have the physical energy or ability or the access to do it, but you can do it. You can touch them. You can minister to them. You can pray for them that God would give you an opportunity. Listen, you and I, you say, but man, the people around me are tough cookies. I know it. I'm surrounded by tough cookies too, man. You say, what do you do? You pray that God softens the cookie, amen? You know when the, <laughs> you know, we'll say, what softens the cookie? Life. Life does. Crisis does. Loss does. And when they're soft, that's your opportunity to strike while the iron's hot and minister to them and listen to them and pray for them. You're going to pray for them, and the presence of God is going to manifest itself as you pray, and they're going to feel something that they have never felt before. And it's going to be so spiritually attractive to them. Look, you're looking at me like you don't get this stuff. You and I are so used to the presence of God, we don't realize how amazing it is. One time, my son Austin brought a friend from school to church, and he was sitting in the front row here, and we were just having church as usual. You know, people are coming in, coming out. People are having conversations while we're worshiping. You know, church as usual. You sense a little attitude. Okay, good. You're picking it up because I'm laying it on thick. <laughs> but we brought a young kid to church, and I don't know, he, he might have been like 12 or 13, something, and he's sitting right here, and we're just worshiping, doing our thing, we're all used to it, and my wife looks over, and the kid's crying. And she, she goes over to him, and goes, hey, what's, what's the matter, buddy? And he goes, this is so powerful, it's, it's making me emotional. The presence of God that he had never felt before, that we are so used to, touched his little heart, and he began to weep. Look, kids don't just, you know, 13-year-old 13 13 boys, they don't just cry like that. That's the presence of God. You and I make ourselves available because he's our God, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We carry his presence. When we pray for someone, they're going to feel some stuff they never felt before, and that's going to attract them spiritually. The next step is to invite them to this place, and God will touch them if you get them through those doors here. I guarantee it. Making the Lord our God requires more than lip service. It requires more than a confession about who Jesus is. It requires more than solid, systematic theology. It requires us to push all the idols out of our hearts. The throne of our hearts is a one-seater. The throne of our hearts is not a love seat. It's not a sectional. You know, we treat it like it's one of those big couches that we got in our living, you know, with the leg thing that goes up. Right? No, it's a one-seater. Well, I put all the things I love in my heart, and I just add a little Jesus to it. That's not the way it works. He's got to be Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. 
He won't share our hearts with idols. So you and I, when the psalmist says, he is my God, what the psalmist is saying, I pushed out every other idol, and I've allowed Jesus to sit on the throne of my heart. He, he's my, I mean, this is Old Testament too, you know, but, you know, the, the same spirit, God brooding, God moving through them, it's that same thing. If God is on the throne of your heart, if Jesus is in your heart, he's got to be on the throne all alone, or he's not going to share it with anybody else. The throne only has room for one. And it's got to be Jesus. The next thing the psalmist says is that what? I will trust in him. So he gives us, you know, he's given us four things here of what the Lord means to him. And uh, the last thing he's saying, you know, I'm going to trust in this God that I've allowed to sit on the throne of my heart. Putting our complete trust in the Lord is the purest expression of faith. We can say we have faith. We can tell stories about the great faith that we've had and the things it's done. But listen, until we trust the Lord in every situation, our faith needs work. Are you wilting on me out there? You still thinking about the love seat or the sectional in your heart? No wonder I'm so full in there. But we've got to put our trust in the Lord. And there again, driving those idols out are going to help us. Arriving at the first three conclusions that we covered is going to allow us to trust him a little easier. When we've made the Lord our refuge, when the Lord is our fortress of protection and we know it, then trusting God is a little bit easier. God wants us to trust him according to the counsel of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Did you hear it? Proverbs 3 is giving us some counsel there. It's kind of a three-pronged attack here. You got to trust the Lord how? With all of your heart. That means every place where there's doubt and unbelief, we've got to address that and drive it out. Because if our heart's divided and we're trusting in other things besides the Lord, there again, he's not going to share our hearts with anyone else. The psalmist is telling us that he trusts the Lord. The writer in Proverbs is telling us that we've got to do it with all of our hearts. And then he says, lean not on your own understanding. You know, you know what our, our biggest problem is? Besides the person we see staring in the mirror back at us, the biggest problem is our minds. The enemy knows that. He knows it's our weak spot, and so he constantly attacks our minds. So he, he says here in Proverbs, lean not on what? Your own understanding. See, our minds, our minds short-circuit our faith. Our minds, why? Because we overthink things when we should just trust. You know, when a child crosses the street and they're really small and, you know, they grab their parent's hand, they just grab that hand and trust and they sail right across the street. They don't, you know, pull back on their parent and go, did you look both ways? Do you have your glasses on, Dad? You know, I mean, uh, are you sober? You know, no, they just put their hand in there, and they don't overthink it. They just trust their parent, and they sail right across the street. You know, we've got to be that way with God, to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. God, do you, do you realize what you're asking me to do? God, have you really thought this out? God, is there a plan B that we can discuss? Right? Jesus in the garden, praying in agony. Lord, if this cup can pass from me, what is he saying? Do, do, you got a, do you got another way to do this, Father? That's our flesh. That was Jesus' flesh. 
warring against the will of the Father. Yet he said, not my will, but yours be done. Why? Because he wasn't willing to lean on his own understanding. Though he was the only begotten Son of God, though he was fully God and fully man, his flesh didn't want to suffer, didn't want to die, didn't want to go to the cross. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. Not my idea, Lord. Not my agenda, Lord. Not my way, Lord, but your way. Come on, that's got to be it. The proverb continues here. He says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct or make straight your path. So, you know, in all our ways, that, that you know, sometimes we compartmentalize things and we think, well, this is, you know, this is my job and this is my family and these are my relationship and here's my spirituality. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, somebody just said a little while ago, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's the Lord of my relationships. He's the Lord of my work. He's the Lord of my career. He's the Lord of my hobbies. Come on. He's got to be Lord of all. Now, I know this clashes with our, you know, with, with our hot tub Christianity that we have in the West here. You know, just do your thing and do whatever you want, and it's all grace, and just come to church once in a while and sing the happy, clappy, goosebump song, and you're good. Just, you know, add a little Jesus to your routine. Mm. There's a lot of people going to wake up in eternity really sad, thinking that that was the way to have a relationship with God. God help us. He has to be Lord of all. He has to be the one we put our entire trust in with all of our hearts, not leaning on our own understanding, acknowledging him in all of our ways. Do we keep pet sins for ourselves? Do we keep pet vices for ourselves? What does the Holy Spirit think about those things? David said, search me, try me, know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. I could go on and on, but you look like you're about to die, so let's... This is just Wednesday. We'll save the real beating for Sunday, but verse 3 reminds us that we can count on God's protection against the unseen trappings of life as well as the things that are beyond our control. And it says here, for he, he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper or the fowler, we're going to talk about that word that's used in the King James the fowler, and from the deadly pestilence. So, you know, verse 3 is reminding us that God protects us, what? From unseen traps of the enemy and from things that are beyond our control. Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the perilous pestilence. Let's talk about a fowler or a trapper. What the, what the word here is this, using this imagery of, you know, birds that fly into these unseen traps. A fowler was a person who specialized in catching birds. And they would use these really subtle, cunning traps and snares to capture birds. And, you know, the fowler would capture a bird and then use it for various purposes throughout the ages. Obviously, birds were used as food. Uh, they were used as pets. They were used to hunt with. They would trap falcons and, and birds of prey, and they would teach them. Uh, you've, you've all seen those guys that, you know, have them falcons sitting on their arm like that. What's that all about? The fowler catches them, trains them, and uses them for his purpose. And that's just what the enemy wants to do with you. He wants to snare you. He wants to take away your freedom. A bird belongs flying, doesn't belong in a cage. A bird belongs free, doesn't belong on someone's arm doing their bidding. The enemy wants to catch you, snare you, take your freedom away, and use you for his purposes. That's who the fowler is. That's what 
the fowler does. And, and the word is saying here, what? surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, the unseen traps, the things we don't, uh, you know, the things we don't see coming. How many times, you know, uh, the enemy tries to trip us up or trap us or deceive us, and God is protecting us from all that. We don't really think that it's our own intellect and spiritual maturity and our own intuition. Do we really think that? You and I are no match for the devil. You and I are no match for demons. They know the word better than we do. They don't have a finite mind. They're a different entity than we are. The only reason we're here and we're free and we're alive in Christ and we're not in bondage right now is because God has delivered us from the snare of the fowler. Come on, give him praise tonight. Also, it says here what from the perilous pestilence, uh, things beyond our control. You know, COVID-19 is the perfect example of this. You know, it's a pestilence. It's unseen. It's unknown. You remember when this first came out, we didn't know what it was going to do. We didn't know, you know, how deadly it was going to be. Anybody remember that? How long has it been now? A year and a half? Are we going, we're getting close to two years? You know, in the beginning, it's like, man, is this thing going to be like Ebola? Is it going to have like a 90% kill? I mean, we didn't know. The perilous pestilence. Pestilence is exactly that. It's disease. It's infection. It's, you know, it's a plague. And what? The Lord protects us from those things. Boy, is that a good reminder for us today, that it's the Lord who protects us from the unseen and the unknown and the things we don't understand that are beyond our control. All of this was beyond our control. None of us had the ability to stop it, much less even understand it or discern it. It took a while. But I hope you're starting to figure it out now. Psalm 91 is a reminder that God protects us diligently, not our own savvy, not our own intellect, not science, not the government. God is our protection. Someone say amen. Even in death, we're victorious because of Jesus. You say, Pastor, but these things can kill you. Yeah, it's 99.7% survivable, but there's that that little bit that it could kill you. And it's killed some people. But even in death, you, you say, well, you know, what the, you know what happened? We didn't have enough faith or the devil. No, even in death, we're victorious. You and I are much better off trusting the Lord than living in fear because, you know, those of us who are in Jesus Christ, we can't lose. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15, 54 so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Even in death, we're victorious, amen. The worst thing that can happen to us is that we die. And then, oh, well, that's really terrible. Now I get to spend eternity with Jesus. <laughs> Some of you look, well, I don't want to die. Well, you're going to die someday. Let me tell you something about life. Nobody makes it out alive. We're going to die someday. And that day is set in stone in the Father's hand. He knows our beginning and our end. No one can snatch us from his hand, so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the perilous 
pestilence. Don't be afraid of the snarl or the, fa- the, the snare of the fowler because God protects us in all these things. He's our covering. He's our source. I'm going to be talking about fear on Sunday. So if you're not getting enough of this, you know, we'll get a little bit more on Sunday. But understand something that the Lord is our protection and we don't have to fear. So the perilous pestilence, we talked about that. The, the snare of the fowler, we talked about that. Now, verse 4 paints a beautiful picture of God's protection as he provides us a refuge in the place of intimacy with him. You know, verse 4 says here, he will cover you with his pinions. That's feathers. He will cover you with his feathers. Under his wings, you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Now, there again, uh, the... You know, some of these words we don't understand. Uh, a better translation, a shield and buckler. He's talking about, we're going to talk about that. But let's talk about the fact that he's going to cover us with the feathers under his wings. Now, if we were birds, we would really be digging this verse. Because when birds are little baby chicks and all that stuff, when birds are sitting in the nest and, and the mama's there and she's warm and she's big and she's fluffy and she puts her wings over them, it's heaven on earth for those little birds. And the imagery here, you know, is something that maybe we don't understand. We don't know about shields and bucklers. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But, you know, being under the the shadow of mama's wings there, uh, we need to understand what the implications are here. There's no safer, no more secure place for a bird to be than under its mother's wings. And I want to read a little excerpt to you from this book, God's Shield of Protection, Psalm 91. And it says this, the Lord gave me a vivid picture of what it means to seek refuge under his wings. My husband Jack and I live in the country. And one spring, our mother hen hatched a brood of baby chicks. One afternoon, they were scattered all over the yard when suddenly there was the shadow of a red-tailed hawk overhead. I noticed something, and it taught me a lesson that I'll never forget. The mother hen did not run to those little chicks or jump on the top of them to try and cover them with her wings. No, instead she squatted right where she was, spread out her wings, and began to cluck. And those little chicks, hearing the mother's cluck, ran from every direction and came running to her to get under those outstretched wings. Then the hen pulled her wings down tight, tucked in every little chick safely under her to get those babies that hawk would have to literally go through the mother. When I think of those baby chicks running to their mother, I realize it's under his wings that we may seek refuge, but we have to run to him. You see, he's our protection. He's our source. He's our covering. He's our fortress. He's our place of safety, but we've got to listen for his voice. Because there's many times the Spirit of the Lord is calling out to us and crying for us to come to him. There was no way logistically that mother could round up all those babies in enough time. But she stopped where she was, she let out that alarm clock, and those birds heard it and ran to her. God's calling for his people to run to him. He's calling for us to come into the safety of his wings. We have to hear and we have to obey. I'm not going to cluck for you, but you get the idea. The second half of verse 4 shifts to another analogy, and I'm going to close with this. We go from birds to battle armor. Both topics would resound with Old Testament culture. Uh, It's a little removed from us, so let's define what's going on here. His truth 
shall be our shield and buckler. Now, we get what a shield is, and we preach through Ephesians about the armor of God. Everybody knows what a shield is, right? Come on, you watch Braveheart. You, got, you get this stuff. Okay, a buckler is something that's a little different. A buckler is a smaller shield. It's a handheld shield. Uh, the, the, the shield that we're talking about here, the big one is kind of a two-handed or a one-handed, but you can, you can hide behind it. A buckler is a smaller shield that would either be on the hand that would, you could punch with or deflect uh, blows with, or you could put it on your shoulders to deflect strikes from there. But this buckler was a small mobile shield that could be used, you know, to employ in areas of defense where you were uncovered at the moment when you were under attack. So, you know, this idea of a shield and a buckler, this little handheld mobile shield. And he says, what? God's truth. Notice that his truth is our shield. His truth is our buckler. It's what protects us. Why do we need a shield from all the fiery darts of the enemy? What's the devil's job? He's the accuser of the brethren. All day long, all he does is he figures out how to come at you, and he fires these flaming arrows at your heart to, to, to pierce you so that what? You'll shrink back from your faith, or you'll embrace doubt and unbelief, or you'll just wither from the barrage of it. So the shield of faith quenches all the fiery darts, amen? But that buckler is also an important shield that, um, uh, you know, protects us from the attacks of the enemy. And, and this imagery here is saying that, you know, what protects us, what defends us, what allows us to stop the attack of the enemy is that we know God's truth. We'll know the truth, and the truth will set us free. You say, well, pastor, how do I, how do I get truth? Here it is. This is it, man. You got to be in it. We got to be in it. We got to get it off the pages into our hearts and in our lives. The, the, the most vulnerable Christian out there is the Christian who doesn't know the word. The most vulnerable Christian out there is the Christian who doesn't sit under sound teaching. Why people are destroyed for a lack of what? There it is. We've got to know the truth, and the truth will set us free. The truth becomes a shield and a buckler for us. The truth of God's word becomes our defense. Defense from what? Defense from all the accusations of the enemy. The enemy all day long is saying things like this, you're beyond help, God's given up on you. The enemy says things to us like, God will never forgive you for that. You've done it too many times. Come on out there, it's getting quiet. You know, don't even ask God to forgive you or for another chance. You've blown it that shield. We need that buckler. We need that truth that says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin. Amen. We need that truth to say, I'm not defeated. I'm more than a conqueror. I'm the head and not the tail. Amen. We need God's truth. We need to be like Jesus to be able to have enough of the word in us to come back at the enemy when he comes after us. It is written. It is written. It is written, Jesus said. He's calling us to come under the shelter of his wings. He's calling us to feast on his word and live in the truth and allow it to defend us from all the lies and all the confusion that's in the world right now. God wants us to trust him with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding, amen. There is so much in these verses here. I hope that you've grabbed what you've needed tonight and that you've tucked it into your heart so that tomorrow be able to live it. Let's bow our heads. Father, we just thank you tonight for Psalm 91. We thank you for these few verses that we've covered so far. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that may be in harm's way and not even realize it. Father, help us. 
Father, to use discernment and wisdom and to feast on your word and to find the secret place and to draw close to you, to come under the shelter of your wings, to allow you to be our fortress, our place of safety, to allow you to be our refuge, God. We don't want to be out there isolated. We want to be insulated by your love and by having intimacy with you. So do that in my life and in each of our lives tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give him praise tonight.